Hi everyone and welcome to another Stemiverse episode. Today I have the pleasure of talking to Dan Manns. Dan is the Chief Executive Officer and Chairman of the Board for the Robotics Education and Competition Foundation, RC, and has more than 25 years of experience in the fields of software, electrical and mechanical engineering. As the CEO of RC, Dan has a unique perspective of STEM education, robotics and how competition can propel learning and inspire the world's next generation of engineers. Given that we are now more than a year into the COVID-19 pandemic, I'm keen to learn how RIC's competitions have evolved to deal with the difficulties and risks of holding live events that involve domestic and international travel and a lot of people and their robots. Dan, thank you for joining me. How are you today? I'm doing really well, Peter. Thanks for uh, having, especially all the Australians out there, which uh, we're really excited about because we have a, a great program in Australia also. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, after you contacted me, I, I was aware of the REC Foundation and its work, but uh, I took another look <laughs> in the last few days. I was preparing for this interview, and I've got to say that I'm impressed, especially the growth that you have achieved during the COVID-19 pandemic, and we'll get into that as well. It was uh, something that, this is something that is very interesting to me, how an organization like yours that is based on like a face-to-face mm-hmm. events uh, evolved to take, maybe not advantage is the right word, but to, to evolve along with what is happening around us in the world and losing time and um, I guess losing steam uh, during this time. So just in case, one of our listeners <laughs> is not familiar with the RBC Foundation and its mission and its work. Could you take a few minutes to tell us what is the RBC Foundation as uh, an institution and describe what its mission is? Absolutely. So the Robotics Education and Competition Foundation, so REC Foundation, as you said, um, we've been around for about 15 years. Uh, 13 years is a not-for-profit and basically, we're, we're trying to increase student interest in STEM, which is science, technology, engineering, and math, um, by using hands-on, affordable, and sustainable robotics engineering programs. So that was the basis of what we started 15 years ago. Over the past few years, we've actually um, expanded quite a bit. So while our mission hasn't changed, the activities that we do to accomplishment have grown. So we're probably best known for our VEX Robotics competition, which is close to 30,000 teams globally. Um, impacting almost 350,000 students participated um, in the pre-COVID year. Uh, we're in over 70 countries. Uh, and that's, you know, like I said, our probably our most well-known program. But over the past couple of years, um, we've also added multiple drones programs. And we've added a, a factory automation competition that really focuses on workforce development. And all those activities are supplemented by our online educational resources, which include STEM labs, a knowledge base, and and online challenges. So again, VEX Robotics is mostly what we're known for, but we're so much more now because uh, one of the things that we realized, and my background is industrial robotics, I spent 20 years at FANUC, but one of the things we realized is not all students want to do mobile robotics, but we think all students need an opportunity to at least try a STEM activity. So we think that drones and online challenges and some of these other activities really gives more students an opportunity. So robotics is, I guess, the the flag, uh, the flag post, like a flagship actually, <laughs> flagship mm-hmm. objective of the RSC Foundation. But over the years, you've expanded into other areas. Still, though, use automation is is a is a strong component of what you do. Whether it's industrial robotics, obviously, and you introduced drones as well. 
Could you tell us why the focus in, in automation, uh, do you see perhaps as this being a very useful skill for people to have in the future, the way that you know the, the economy and technology is heading, uh, some, something else perhaps? Yeah, yes, absolutely. I mean, it's really important that our programs provide you know, students a fun activity, but also addresses the global workforce shortage. I mean, uh, not just in the United States and Australia, but globally, STEM jobs are growing at a much faster rate than non-STEM jobs. I mean, yeah. uh, artificial intelligence, industry 4.0, robotics are becoming more and more common. And we feel that our programs help bridge that gap. So we'll always need engineers and mathematicians. And that's a lot of students in our program, they go into the traditional STEM fields. But even in our day-to-day operations, students in our programs will now go into the manufacturing jobs or they'll go into the robotics jobs or they'll make do a, a technical job that's not even under traditional fields, such as home robotics. We actually have a few alumni that are working for some of the home robotics companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and more importantly than even just the robotic skills they're learning, they're learning the soft skills which is communications and troubleshooting and problem solving and collaboration. All the students in our program learn those skills. So whether they choose a STEM career or a technical career, or they go into banking or legal or something like that, those problem solving and communication skills serve them well too. But again, we want more students to be engaged in in technology. Um, That's our primary mission. And we think that our robotics platform and our drones platform is, is a way to accomplish that. Yeah. In my experience, I find that, um, you know, you're working with robotics is multidisciplinary, not just in terms of the kind of technical skills that you need. So you need software development capabilities, mechanical development capabilities. Um, there's the user interface aspects. Uh, there's the cloud now. There's so many things that can come in. But because of the complication there, you also need a lot of people. And that's where the soft skills come in as well, especially in a team environment like uh, like what happens in a real REC foundation event. So um, uh, I can see why you can even become a lawyer <laughs> by, <laughs> well, uh, by learning. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. And I think at the end of the year, and I tell this story a lot, at the end of the year, when parents come up to me or coaches come up to me, rarely do they talk about the technical skills they learned. I mean, it happens once in a while. Someone will say their student is a much better programmer or they really love mechanical engineering because of their experience. But overwhelmingly, 95, 97% of the time, parents and coaches come up to and thank us because they really improved the, again, what we call the soft skills, but the communication skills, um, the problem solving, uh, the working under pressure, um, all that set of skills. That's what they've really, really learned from our program. And those skills transcend any, any industry. I mean, creative thinking, uh, collaboration, communication, those are what every employer is looking for. And interestingly enough, we just had a keynote speaker at our most recent event, and she was a lawyer. And I thought her message about how robotics helped her um, was fantastic. My daughter, one of my daughters, all three of my daughters have been involved in robotics. And one of them is a marketing major right now. So you wouldn't say it's a traditional STEM skill, but she's done a fantastic job of leading teams and problem solving skills that I think she learned in robotics. So again, we are happy with the technical skills that we teach, but it's really about providing students a well-rounded opportunity. I think you've already answered my next question, which was uh, just to talk about a few of the tangible benefits that the foundation has achieved over the years. I think you just mentioned a few people that went through the program, didn't go into a, I guess, engineering 
style career. They did other things, but they took a lot of benefits from their um, experience with the RSC Foundation events and going through the program. Uh, is there anything else that you could add into like the success stories that came out of the Foundation's work? Yeah, so absolutely. So if we look back at our core mission about getting students involved in STEM, there's some data out there from universities, uh, studies that we've actually funded, like with Georgia Tech and, and Utah State. But what, what some of the most interesting data is that 89% of the students in our program are more likely to study STEM courses in college. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, 97% of our students now understand engineering and 83% plan to take technical courses and, you know, future ones. And like 87% want a, a job in a STEM or a computer field. So those are some of the tangible, um, you know, we're at a point where over half the students in our programs go and pursue a four-year degree, but I'm just as excited about the students that don't because um, one of my favorite statistics that I like to quote is uh, students that complete compete in our programs participate their industry certifications in 50% of the time. So basically, mm-hmm. if you've been on a VEX robotics team or on a drones team, and now you go into the workforce and you need to learn your industry skills, the students in our program completed in half the time. Wow. So we have doctors, we have lawyers, we have NASA astronauts. Uh, you know, we have a lot of those high profile positions, but we also have people um, working in factories that are maintaining the robots or teaching the robots or they're working on um, guided vehicles, and they may not have their four-year degree, um, but they're valuable contributors, and they're earning a good salary. Um, they have job security, and they're helping keeping manufacturing jobs in Australia or in the United States or Canada or anywhere where our programs are. Yeah, perfect. And is it true that the way that the program is structured, uh, you are, I guess, um, bringing in students from diverse backgrounds, boy, girls type of um, um, balance in the teams. And uh, is there something you can say about this? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in 2016, uh, it became quite the crisis in the United States, but globally that people with uh, diverse backgrounds, people underprivileged is what we call it in the US uh, and women in STEM were very underrepresented in STEM jobs in the workforce, less than 20%. So we took a hard look at our own program and we realized that only 23% of the students in our programs were women, for example. Hmm. So we started our Girl Power Initiative and uh, every year through seminars, through lots and lots of grants, we give out hundreds and hundreds of grants a year to start um, teams with uh, girls, uh, young women, um, through our online challenges, through great sponsorships like with Google and Texas Instruments. Um, we've been successful. The, the past year, 43% of the students in our programs were women. And in our elementary and middle school programs, it's actually over 50%. So mm-hmm. we're hitting that goal. But we also have other initiatives. Uh, one of our most uh, passionate initiatives recently is our Native American initiative, right? So in the United States, Native Americans are, are even more significantly underserved in STEM jobs. It's under 3%. Yeah. Um, so we've partnered with Native American tribes And we started programs uh, throughout the U.S. And we literally have success stories where students didn't enjoy going to school. And now they stay every single day to be on the robotics team. Their grades have improved. Uh, They're graduating at a much higher rate from from secondary school. Um, And then, of course, we also have initiatives for Hispanic students, uh, for African-American students. We have all those initiatives. But as as an ecosystem, it's one of the pillars of what we do at the REC Foundation. We don't want to just reach 
the students already have those advantages. We want to make sure that everybody has the opportunity because frankly, when students get the skills in our program and other programs too, not just ours, they go into their workforce or they go into college with much more confidence and they're more likely to stay involved. And then that's what's really, really important. Wow. That's impressive. Like, And it could be a, a topic on its own to discuss how you do it. How, how do you approach <laughs> uh, underprivileged uh, young people, uh, underrepresented? Uh, maybe maybe in a, in a nutshell, you could give us some hints, for example, do you modify programs to make them more appropriate for women, for example, or native Indians or Hispanics, uh, or is it in the messaging uh, perhaps on how you invite them to become part of the foundation's work or perhaps both or something else? Uh, in a natural yeah, so I, I think it's, it's, it's a multiple approach. So for example, like we have a program for students with disabilities, so cognitive mm -hmm. learning lessons. But even then, we don't radically change our program. So in our elementary program, it's one minute for a match, and we increase it to two minutes. And, and we partner with leading organizations in the U.S., so the National Society of Black Engineers. Uh, together, we recruit uh, underrepresented groups to give scholarships and grants to. But I think what we really do that's probably, I think, the best impact long term is for our Girl Powered and some of our other grants. We don't give it to just start girl teams. So we have these, uh, we give it to make the teams inclusive and represent what society is. So yeah. we have some great workshops and, you know, the Googles and the TIs and the Northrop Grumman send speakers and we make it fun. We do fun activities. We have cookies, give out shirts. Uh, but what we really do is we give a lot of grants out. I'm talking hundreds and hundreds of grants a year, probably for our girl power. It's about 600 grants a year for the young women to actually join a team. And sometimes they join an all girls team. But probably 70% of the time, the team is at least has one young man, one boy. Um, and average, it's 50-50, right? So what we're doing is we're giving the girls the opportunity. And then we have a lot of instruction on making sure that girls have a chance to drive the robot, make sure they have a chance to build. Because our data shows um, that boys grow up playing with Legos and cars and stuff like that. And sometimes the girls don't, but the girls are often a lot more confident in journal writing, the engineering design process. So what we really try to do is, hey, the boys should take part in the engineering design process and the girls should get a chance to drive and maybe wreck the robot, um, to build the robot, to definitely program the robot. And I think when we get them at a, when we get students at a young age before stereotypes are formed, it takes care of itself. So that's, at the beginning, we focused a lot of our diversity initiatives on high school, but right now my focus has been on elementary and middle school because we want to get them before those stereotypes take place. Yeah, very true. Great. Uh, it's clearly working. So uh, yeah, this is something for everyone to look at um, as an example of what is possible to do. Um, I'd like to switch to an, another topic now that is, again, is core, is, is in the core of what the foundation does, and that is um, competition. <laughs> yes. So, you know, in traditional education, uh, things, I, I guess, they're, they're competitive in a way uh, where you, you do some work, you get a mark from your teacher, but that, that mark is not really for you comparable to others. The teacher knows. Uh, how I compare against others in the same class because of the mark that I received, but uh, that doesn't come to me, so I have no way of knowing. But in the work that the RSC Foundation is doing, this is, this is cool. You've got competitions. Uh, yeah, the events are competitive. You've got winners. You've got losers. Mm -hmm. uh, but somehow education does happen, and it seems like the participants, whether win or lose, are extremely happy to come back and to try again. So 
Can you tell us how, how you got this to work and what does competitive education really means for you? Sure. I mean, so, so in, in many schools in the U.S., Australia in particular, um, there are technical classes, engineering classes, and these schools use the VEX Robotics curriculum, right? So VEX Robotics is one of the leading STEM education companies in the world. And, and so we'll get teams started because they're doing VEX in the classroom. But over half of our teams are doing it as an, what we would call an after-school activity. But it complements, is the word I would use, it complements traditional education. So the first area that I think it really does well is it teaches those soft skills that we already talked about. I won't rehash it, but when you're on a robotics team and you're competing, um, your communication skills, your troubleshooting skills, and your teamwork collaboration skills really, really develop. So that's something that probably develops better in an extracurricular activity than maybe in some classroom activities. The other thing is it does is it really reinforces what you're already learning. So my best example that I like to say is gear ratios. So there's always a trade-off between power and speed, and you may learn that in your math class or more likely your physics or science class. Um, but you see it for real in competition robotics, and that reinforces it. And we do complement education by providing STEM labs and knowledge base articles for free. So all the educators in our programs get all these resources, and we literally use examples of changing uh, a drivetrain on a robot for torque versus speed or uh, looking at different mechanisms. So uh, defining what a four-bar link system is, dividing what a gripper system is. And these are all hands-on activities that make it fun, but also reinforce what you're learning in the classroom. So I think it's, it's twofold of A, reinforcing the technical knowledge, but B, increasing the soft skills, the troubleshooting, and, and the, what I would also say creative thinking. And, and together, the data shows. I mean, the data is very verifiable from multiple organizations, not just the REC Foundation, that it has a very proven positive impact on participants. There's many, many studies out there that show that students increase their, their interest by threefold in STEM, or they will pursue a STEM career four times, or they improve their problem-solving skills by 98%. I mean, there's much, much data that shows that competitions work. It should never replace traditional education, but it should definitely complement it. Yeah, I think um, also a big uh, aspect of the the reason why such type of competition, uh, ed educational competition is beneficial is also because of the, uh, the team element. So these are not solo competitions, you've got teams against teams. And as you were talking about gears and gear ratios, uh, I was actually thinking of people, like people as gears in the team. And then they, you know, they, they've got to match each other. I guess the chemistry has to be good, the cooperation has to be good in order for the for the team to achieve maximum torque. Um, so <laughs> like, um, and also just, just to conclude my, my thinking process here, the people in, in the teams tend to be young people, I guess in elementary or maybe high school, at least in my time when I was in, in high school and elementary school, there were no team educational activities. You just had sports, maybe you were in a team in a sport, but not you know learning geography or mathematics. Um, there was no engineering back then in school. In your case, you put kids in teams to go into a competition. So that, I guess that is in a way unseen in, in other educational contexts. Can you tell us about how kids in your competitions tend to mature when you compare the same child in the beginning prior to joining a team as they go through 
the tribulations of being in a team, getting ready for a competition, and then after the end of the competition, yeah. how, how has a child evolved? Or That's matured? a fantastic question. I don't think I've ever been asked that question before. <laughs> but um, so I think we always talk about the teamwork and collaboration, right? We've already said it uh, multiple times uh, today. So when you join a robotics team, um, you are going to have a role. It is not an activity. And we like to even say it's a sport. It's not a sport mm-hmm. or activity um, that you'll excel by yourself. So teamwork is the key. And that's, again, what the parents and the coaches always come up and thank me for is the teamwork, problem solving and communication skills. So a good example is on a a VEX robotics team, um, you're going to have someone who's primarily the driver or maybe two drivers. Um, You're going to have the programming lead or maybe two programming leads. You're going to have the person that does the building, someone who does the CAD Um, And you're going to have someone that does the design process and documents that and someone who's strong. Um, But what's amazing is when these teams come together, um, the roles will often change. So you may come in thinking, I'm going to be the biggest builder. And it turns out you have a really good aptitude of understanding the design process. Or the really quiet person has never said anything but joins a robotics team. Now, all of a sudden, is the best person on strategy. Or maybe they're the best at programming. I mean, I can't believe how many students in our program have actually never programmed or coded before, and then they join the team, and all of a sudden, that's what they want to do is major in computer science. So you join it. um, In order to be a successful team, all the parts have to work together. Teamwork is absolutely essential. And I think there's so many different opportunities that everybody finds their niche, and that's where they really gel. Well, so there's also an element of self-discovery there. Uh, I think so. I think maturity, I think that's one thing we see in our program. I've seen it with even uh, a couple of my own kids, right, that join robotics. And um, you can't be that, um, excuse me, but that obnoxious, loud kid and thrive on a robotics team. You're going to get called out. And if you want to belong, you're going to learn to be respectful. You're going to learn to be polite. Matter of fact, at the REC Foundation, one of the first things we implemented after I joined was a code of conduct. Um, so we clearly lay out the expected behaviors of the students and the coaches and, and the parents, too. So sometimes parents can be a little bit passionate. So that code of conduct, if you want to participate, you agree to the code of conduct and, and we do enforce it. And the other thing we do at the REC Foundation is we're very student centered. There's other organizations that are about different skills, but we believe that the students thrive if they're hands on. So we literally have guides for coaches and parents on how much is too much and how much is appropriate. So you've got, you know, yellow, red, and green. Red, you're doing too much for the students. Yellow, if they're learning, if they're emerging, it's that's the appropriate input. And then green is students are doing it all. So we think that those combinations of the of the code of conduct and the student-centered really help the students mature um, to have a great experience and, be, and honestly be better adults. Perfect. Um- Got another relevant question, then we're going to move into something else, like more organizational aspects um, of the foundation's work. So I can imagine uh, a young student uh, hearing about the RSC Foundation work and maybe it's events, maybe a friend told them about it, and they're thinking of joining. They go to the parents and say, I want to join, and they eventually do. I wanted to hear about your experiences in relation to the kind of motivations that parents and uh, the kids that are joining have when they're at the beginning of the journey and then whether you think that they have achieved those uh, objectives and, and motivations that they had coming into the REC Foundation and its events and whether those have actually been superseded by 
some more important things that you just mentioned a few minutes earlier. So basically, whether the hook in joining the REC Foundation's work is something else, let's call it A, but then the real joy, the real achievement is something else, which is B, which they don't know coming in until they come out of it. <laughs> I hope yeah, my question makes I, sense. <laughs> yeah, it does. And I, I think a lot of people join robotics. The parents will will push students into robotics because they're worried about their students having employable skills, right? So everybody has now heard the word robotics and robotics are such an important part of our future. So join a robotics team, they'll learn the skills. I think that's um, one of the expected outcomes when parents or teachers start a robotics team. Again, I think the surprise to them is how they've evolved as a person, that they're mm. much more confident, they communicate better. Um, and then there's a joy too. I mean, students really love being on a robotics team. They really, really love competing. It's one of the reasons the REC Foundation chose to have a season with the global pandemic when most organizations didn't, because mm. we realized that you can do so much um, what I would call virtually, right? Because in the REC Foundation, virtual and remote are different, right? So a lot of students were doing virtual, but we thought hands-on was still key because of those outcomes of, of working with other students and competing against other students. That's such an important part. And I think that's probably where the parents are most surprised or the coaches is how much the students really love the community. I mean, Discord and, and all those chat rooms are just full of thousands and thousands, I shouldn't say thousands, hundreds of thousands of students that communicate across the globe because robotics is now their passion. You know, it's like rugby in Australia or, or, or soccer, or, you know, um, it's those have those passions and students in our program are just as passionate. Um, we have a life changing, I don't want to overstate it, but our programs are life changing to some students because they didn't yeah. have their place and they join a robotics team and that becomes their social circle, their friends, their reason for going to school. And I think that's what surprises the parents is they get the, the technology skills, but they really learn to be part of a community. Yeah, and a new way of thinking, uh, which doesn't come often yeah. with uh, you know, those types of activities. Yeah, I, and, and Peter, I can't wait to talk about how we, we did COVID, but the one thing is yes. that I've been messaging a lot is that robots is a universal language. So with over 70 countries in our programs, and I think we'll be 80 very soon, um, and my goal is to be 100 by the end of the next year. But the one thing that students speak is the robot language. So when you come to a VEX Robotics World Championship and you have China competing against uh, um, Australia, against New Zealand, against Canada, and of course, within the United States, the culture in the Northeast is much different than the South and there's accents and stuff. Everybody can communicate. It's a universal language. And what I love about the program, and, I, and I've said this in one other interview, so this is the second time, is I think it brings down cultural barriers too. And it's an unintended um, benefit of our program that I learned. I think people are more tolerant because now that student in Louisiana or Texas is, is mingling with the student in Washington and Oregon, or the student from Spain or the UK is competing with New Zealand or China. And I think there's an awareness that at the end of the day, we're all students, we're all stressed about grades, we're stressed about dating. So I think robotics, an unintended uh, consequence of this is it brings cultural awareness and I think tolerance too. And, mm -hmm. and that's kind of a deep thought, but I truly believe that. And, and if you come to any international VEX robotics competition, you will see that firsthand. Yeah. A competition in my mind brings up sports and the word I like, I think 
fits very well with uh, what you're talking about is sportsmanship. So you've got really true sportsmanship in a um, robotics competition uh, where competitors actually help each other <laughs> to, <laughs> yep. uh, you know, to do better. <laughs> that's for right. sure. I mean, again, that's we actually say sportsmanship in the, in the REC Foundation Code yeah. of Conduct, right? It's a key word. Well, all right. Uh, let's get into the how now. Um, <laughs> how an event works. And of course, now we, we talk about how pre-COVID and then how during and after COVID. So maybe give us in a nutshell how an robotics event took place pre-COVID and then the, some of the biggest changes that you had to undertake in order to make this possible to continue during and post-COVID? Sure. So the REC Foundation, when we run our VEX Robotics competitions, pre-COVID, we were up to almost 3,000 competitions globally a year. That's 3,000 competitions. But what's interesting is the REC Foundation doesn't run them directly. Uh, we rely on a network of volunteers um, called Event Partners that host the competitions on our behalf. So in Australia, for example, we have you know a couple dozen event partners that will actually host the competition. And what they do is they work with the facility, which is often a school. Um, our program doesn't believe in you know very expensive venues, except for our national and world championships. Um, then we tend to go big for those. Um, but they're often in a school, so the, the the event partner recruits the volunteers, they recruit the referees, they recruit the judges, and of course we have very strong guidelines on how they have to be trained and acted. But they also keep the registration fee. So most events have a token registration fee. In the U.S., it averages about fifty-five dollars per team, so not super expensive. But the REC Foundation doesn't keep the revenue. We rely on our event partners. So we have this basically this massive network of. 3,000 events that are run by volunteers, for, for a better word. And uh, um, our, our events tend to be 30 to 40 teams because of the price cost being so low. Teams compete an average of five or six times. Um, and the REC Foundation oversees it all. You know, And then we have our national championships. The national championship in Australia is absolutely a spectacle. It's a fantastic event. But that's where we start bringing in corporate sponsors. You know, SMC, for example, I know is a sponsor in Australia. Um, and I know our Australia team would be very mad at me right now because I don't know all the Australian sponsors. But globally, Northrop Grumman Foundation, Google, Dell, Tesla, um, and uh, Texas Instruments are, are, and NASA are our biggest sponsors. But anyway, so we culminate in these and they're in person. So at, at VEX Worlds, we have teams from 50 countries competing. Um, we have over 30,000 competitors. They're from all over, but you're bringing in your robot. You're physically competing on the field. And that's how we ran our organization. And then all of a sudden the pandemic hit and yes. everything had to change, right? So what, what happened um, during the pandemic? I guess in the beginning where things were a bit uncertain about how long this is going to last and what does it mean? Should we cancel, postpone, change? Um, what was it like for the REC Foundation at that point? Well, it was very stressful. We'll start by saying it was very stressful. So. It really, I mean, we were monitoring it in January of 2020, um, but we were uh, with the REC Foundation. As me as CEO, one of the things I decided to do is always defer to the guidelines of the country, of the state, or even at the local level. So we were still having in-person um, events, but by the end of February, there was travel restrictions everywhere. But by then, we had, we had been able to finish about 95% of our season, but we did have to cancel our VEX Robotics Championship 
that was in Louis scheduled for Louisville, Kentucky in April of 2020. So we had a celebration. We did a lot of virtual events. We gave out awards. But even though things looked like they were getting a bit better, we realized by midsummer, um, we were realistic. We realized that we were still not going to have a lot of in-person competitions for that calendar year. Now, we were hopeful that things might change for 2021, but we knew in 2020 it was unlikely that there would be a lot of travel. Um, some countries were better than other. You know, New Zealand, for example, um, you know, had a lot of in-person competitions, but it depended. So, but again, what I was saying earlier is we know how important it is for the students to play with their robots and to compete with other students and against other students. So we made a very strong decision to develop infrastructure, a peer-to-peer infrastructure, and to modify our game so that we could connect teams from across the globe. And we had the brainstorm concept in late July. And then by October, we had um, practice matches. So that first practice match in early October was run out of the REC Foundation here in the Dallas, Texas area. And we connected uh, three local schools in the REC Foundation, so four fields, and we connected it and we actually ran some matches. Um, By November, we were actually running real competitions. Our first competition had uh, United Arab Emirates, Turkey, California, Kansas, um, Canada, um, and we still had some bugs, right? So one of the things we originally did was a huge peer-to-peer network, but that's a lot of connections with a lot of computers. So we streamlined the video feed. And then by early January, we had a pretty robust system. So in January, even though within the United States, we had pockets of places opening up, we knew that it wasn't likely that international teams were going to be able to travel to the United States for our world championship in April. And even within the US, we knew that places like the Pacific Northwest, so Washington, Oregon, California, and and the Northeast, like Massachusetts, the New England area, we knew they weren't going to come. So we made the very, very difficult decision of canceling our in-person worlds, but we didn't cancel VEX worlds. We decided to double down on this live remote uh, technology platform. And we said, we're gonna pivot. We're gonna have a live remote uh, tournament VEX Robotics World Championship. So we sent a requirement to, so this past year, our registration was down, but we were still over 12,000 teams. And we said, if you want the chance to compete at VEX Worlds, you need to sign up for one or two live remote tournaments. And literally, it was fantastic. So we had Australia competing against California. We had New Zealand competing against uh, Texas Um, in any given event. And we hosted 20, 30 events a week. We had teams from all over the world competing. And so by the time we got to our world championship, which we delayed a month, we had it in May instead of April to give teams more time to get experience. Um, We culminated last week with the world's largest um, remote robotics tournament. So we had almost uh, uh, 1,700 teams. I think we ended up at 1,690 teams competed from 35 countries, and they competed doing real robotics. So how it works is each field, each team has a field. That was one thing that changed a little bit is every team had to have their own field. And they were connected with a laptop and a camera and we connected the robots. So we still started and stopped the robots remotely. And we had control centers all throughout our offices here in Greenville, Texas. And we started and stopped and we had judging. I mean, one of the things we had to change is how we do judging. So we went from in-person judging to remote judging. Um, Our engineering design notebooks, which were physical notebooks, we allowed electronic notebooks. Um, The game, which was a kind of a back and forth game, we changed it to a scoring game. And at the end of the two weeks, we crowned 
multiple world champions. And, and I'll tell you what, the level of the competition was exciting. It was as good as an in-person event. It wasn't the same experience, but because of the chats that we developed and all that other stuff, students still talked to other students. They had to collaborate. Our world champions have all won world championships by collaborating with their partners. And so uh, we really were able to replicate an in-person event and have it remotely. And it wasn't virtual, it was remote because it was real robots on real fields using real game elements. Uh, there was nothing virtual about it. It was a real robotics event. And we were recognized by the Guinness Book of World Records as having the largest remote robotics tournament of all time. So we ended up having about 13,000 participants. Um, and again, about uh, 1,690 teams, I think was our final team count. It's amazing and especially how quickly you were able to implement that. Um, I'm just looking uh, at the <coughs> website, roboticseducation.org. There's information about the various types of competition. And the one that you've been talking about, I believe, is the live remote world championship. And that's at 2021, which is coming up. And there's videos there for anyone curious about how it actually looks like. You can uh, go to that page, just go to roboticseducation.org, then look for live remote, and you get a lot of information about it there. Yeah. Um, one of the things we wanted to do is make sure the students had a great experience. So we still we still brought in a high tech um, audio visual company. We created a studio with all the lights and bells and whistles. And, you know, we had uh, recaps every morning and afternoon where we highlighted teams. Um, we had opening ceremonies uh, where we recognize it's called our, our flag of nations, where every team that's participating from every country is recognized. We had a award ceremony. We announced next year's game. Uh, we even had a, a fun meme contest. You know, every students were able to submit memes. Um, so we added a lot of the pizzazz that you have in an in-person event. Um, and most importantly is we encourage the students to um, interact with each other. And, and honestly, right before we got on, on this call, I was meeting with our student advisory board. So I have a 12 students selected from across the globe. Matter of fact, one of our students is from Australia and he was on the call and we asked them um, what their experience was. And they said a lot of people were skeptical going in. I mean, these we're talking teenagers, right? So they're always skeptical, but it was universally well praised because it did what we needed. It, it gave students some excitement. It gave them an opportunity to interact and it's never gonna replace an in-person tournament, but it is gonna complement it. We think our live remote technology is here to stay. It allows us to reach places that can't travel um, and they can still now participate in robotics. So it was a lot of work. Um, we did it in nine months and we did it with two developers. So the one of the things the REC Foundation did is we took a lot of our staff that, you know, their skill sets weren't being utilized. People, for example, in the operations team, the warehouse, the shipping, um, we took people that uh, did documents and we taught them the new skills to run all these events too. So the REC Foundation really, really pivoted to, to use our staff so that we could only, we only needed two professional developers and we ran most of the events ourselves. Uh, again, we transformed how we do judging. We also offered online challenges for those students that were just not going to be able to compete in robotics at all. Um, we provided online challenges so students could still do STEM activities and compete in, in activities. And then even our drones program, we pivoted our drones program to add a virtual. So this one was virtual. It was basically enhancing your programming skills. And then yeah. our partner, VEX Robotics, uh, they released for free VEX Code VR. And it was for students to learn coding. And uh, at last check, over 1.6 million students across the globe, 1.6 million students, unique students, 
have used VexCode VR to, to improve their coding skills. And they've written 95,000 or 995 million, not thousand, 95 million um, programs have been written through VexCode VR. So again, we, we, we did something unique that was unprecedented. And honestly, that was the right word with the competition, but we also provided online resources such as coding and STEM activities for those students too. It's uh, amazing. So if I, if I understand right, the drone uh, VR program from Vex Robotics, if I understand right, you fly your drone in a virtual simulated environment, right? It, it's not a real drone that flies in um, like in the oval here nearby. It flies in virtual world, but the programming is the same. You could take the same program and upload it onto a quadcopter and the effect would be the same. Am I understanding correctly? Uh, yes. So, um, so actually, we actually have three drones programs, to be honest with you. And, and the first one is our RAD-C, so that's our drones competition. That's a physical drone. And it's actually, we partner with For the Win on that one. It's not a VEX product. Yeah. Um, then we have our Bell, Bell um, Vertical Robotics Challenge, which is a, a helicopter drone project. And that's where you actually, it's very large drones and they do multiple missions. But the one that we're specifically talking about is uh, VRAD, which is our virtual drones. And that's exactly what they do. It's a, it's a 3D environment. They're giving a basic drone and they have to program it. And so if they program it to go faster, then it's a little bit harder to control, right? So uh, the, the better you programming it, the more skills that you can do. And uh, that was something we quickly developed. Our, our partner for that one was Robotify out of Ireland. Um, so we didn't develop that ourselves. We partnered with Robotify. And again, it was it was a way for students to actually improve their programming, coding skills, and still have a lot of fun. And we had a world championship for VRAD, too. We actually, um, the top teams from around the world competed, and uh, they had uh, coding challenges and had to fly their drones for missions, and it was super successful. And, and just like in-person robotics, the attendance was down this year, but our in-person drones programs are still thriving. And it's, uh, and so, you know, I think everybody knows what a drone is, but our in-person drones is like doing rescue missions and flying through hoops and speed and maneuverability. So, so all those programs existed, but the, the live remote for, for our VEX robotics program, and then our virtual drones program were probably the two that we adapted most for COVID. Yeah. It looks it looks amazing. I'm I'm looking at the VRAD Martian Survival Challenge. Yes, that was it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So NASA, we were gen you know we we found Robotify and um and and that was good. But then we wanted to be able to develop a, a nice uh, challenge, and of course all that stuff costs money. And it was great because NASA actually came through and gave us some funding to help develop that program. And again, that's going to come back. Um, we think uh, one of the things we learned is the, all the programming was in Python. And that was a little bit advanced because in our VEX robotics competitions, um, we can start with block programming before you go to Python or C++ or some of the more advanced languages. But every student has the opportunity to start with block programming. So for year two for VRAD, we're going to have the same option where um, you can start with block coding, and then as you get more comfortable, then you can switch over to Python. So um, I, I, year two will even be more fun um, than it was in year one because, you know, what, all the things we learned from, from COVID, from the global pandemic, um, there's a lot of things we learned that will transform the REC Foundation. I think the example I like to give the most is the digital note, is the engineering notebook. I'm a big believer in the engineering design process. It's a core part of our program. You can't win any awards without doing a design notebook. 
And I'll be honest with you, I was stubborn. I was staying, saying that we needed the physical notebooks because I personally believe writing things down is, is important. But we couldn't do that. Exactly. You have one here and, and mine's right here. Exactly. I keep paper. Yeah. And so maybe we're showing our age, but I think that uh, design notebooks are really important. But we couldn't collect notebooks. We couldn't do judging with physical notebooks. So we did do online uh, notebooks, digital notebooks, and we added time stamping because the one thing we don't want is students to write their notebooks in the last 48 hours, right? It needs to be every meeting you <laughs> yeah. do it. So we time stamped them. Um, but then the judges got to, uh, because it was all digital. So instead of the judges doing all the judging of the notebooks and interviews the day of the competition, they're like, well, they're digital. So now they're judging on Tuesday and Wednesday. So when the event happened, that part was out of the way. So I don't think we'll go back from that. I think we'll always now allow the option of remote judging and remote notebooks. And again, I don't think our virtual RAD will go away. I know the VEX code VR program, you know, VEX, when they launched that, it was some basic coding. And then they created all these really cool activities like an underwater activity. Um, so I do think that fundamentally, the pandemic, while none of us wish it would have happened, uh, made us reflect on what we did and make some changes that honestly will allow us to reach more students. I mean, yeah. you know, L LRT will allow us to reach areas where students can't travel. Um, I think it'll allow us to give. We we've probably started VEX teams in in twenty on twenty countries in Africa, but maybe only three or four have ever traveled to a competition. So now all those countries will be able to compete, right? Yeah. And more and more students will be able to do drones because of this. So we fundamentally had to pivot and adapt because of the pandemic. And but that's what we ask of our students too, right? We ask them to to pivot and, and look at the design process and make improvements. And it forced the REC Foundation to do the same thing. Lead by example. <laughs> okay, I've got two questions left. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the first one is, is that a popcorn machine uh, in the corner behind you? <laughs> Peter, it is. And the funny thing is I normally have a jukebox there. So um, I joined the REC Foundation four years ago. Prior to that, I was president of a company called Rack Solutions. Um, we made data center products. So we did engineering design and manufacturing right here in the US. We were a leading supplier of data center racks. And when I took the job at the REC Foundation as a thank you gift, they bought me a jukebox. And that's normally what sits in the corner. But for Vex Worlds, I actually took it out of the office and we put it in like our lounge area so that everybody can enjoy it. But um, for the call today, I didn't want that empty space there. So, but I have a popcorn machine. I also have gumball machines in my office too. I try to try to make it a little fun. So it's very interesting. Normally, people have books and uh, things like that, uh, degrees. But uh, I like I like what you've got there. Um, take your example and do something interesting with my background. <laughs> All right. Uh, the second question is, and you really have covered uh, a lot of it, is uh, I want to look into the future of the REC Foundation. Uh, mm -hmm. I will say that I do expect a um, drone, a student designed drone on Mars sometime in the future. Okay, NASA has done it, but I think you guys can <laughs> can do it one day. So what is the future like, say, in 2021, so the near future, maybe looking a couple of years, because you've got so much that you have created. You've changed them so much in the foundation. I guess, will you deploy and then kind of take a step back to see how all that how, how people react to all this, which is very a very rich offering of, uh, of programs, uh, competitions, and education? Or do you have even more new things in the pipeline? 
Well, um, so my staff will tell you that I'm a very aggressive CEO. Um, when I joined the REC Foundation, we had you know Vex Robotics for middle school and high school and Vex IQ for elementary and middle, and we had a couple other things. And now we have dozens and dozens of programs. Um, one of the things about partnering with Vex Robotics to run their competitions is we get to um, work with them on what we think the, the STEM community needs. So uh, one of the things I think your audience will be really excited about is we piloted in the middle of the pandemic our AI competition. So it's the VEX AI competition. And that's hands-off. That's where the students build and program two robots. And there's vision on there. There's GPS sensors. And basically, students are doing AI. They're detecting field and game elements, deciding how to score, how to prevent scoring. So we did the pilot program last year with uh, 60 teams, and that will be one of our premier featured new programs for the 2021-2022. On the other side of the spectrum, um, one of the things I'm super excited about is our new VEX Go competition. Um, that's geared for early elementary. And the student there, it's not about winning or anything like that. It's about building a robot to accomplish as many tasks as you can. And they're very simple. But the key is you build it um, first, you build the mechanisms, then you add power and the programming is optional. Because I think across the globe, so many students spend so much time on computers that they don't build as much. And I think the VexGo program really addresses that where students really build and they play and, and they have fun. And then my personal very favorite program um, that we also launched last year during the pandemic is the factory automation competition. So for your audience, they should know that I spent over 20 years at Fanuc Robotics. Uh, Fanuc is the largest industrial robotics company in the world. Uh, matter of fact, the first time I'd ever been to Australia was to do a, a project at, uh, at GM Holden in Australia, right? Yeah. So, but I spent 20 years at, at Fanuc and I believe, again, what I've said earlier, I believe the emphasis shouldn't be just on STEM, it should be on workforce development. So yeah. with the permission of the board and the partnership with VEX and with a grant from the Department of Defense, um, we were able to, over the last two years, develop um, a competition where students build small robots. Um, they're not large robots like FANUC, they're small robots, and they build conveyor systems. And we have STEM labs and instruction that goes with all of it. And at the end, it's it's a basically a, what I would call a palletizing competition that very much mimics like an Amazon workshop. Mm. But the students basically build robots and conveyors to move packages as quickly as possible. So our, <laughs> our workforce development programs will be key, um, very center to what we do in the next couple of years. So wow. early That's STEM important. programs with VexGo. Um, advanced with VEX AI competition, workforce development, and then of course drones, because I think drones is also very important to our strategy because there are students that don't wanna do mobile robotics, but everybody wants to fly a drone. So students do drones and they add sensors, whether it's a camera, and of course they have to program it. So we're reaching even more students and teaching them the STEM and technology skills. And then of course, I do expect I have very ambitious plans that our VEX robotics competition and our VEX IQ competition, um, they're already one of the largest competitions in the world, you know, close to 30,000 teams. But I really do expect those competitions to continue to grow until we're easily the, the largest competition in the world. Well, yeah, I can see it there. Uh, you, you're getting there. I think you're way, <laughs> uh, like the, the array of opportunities that you have for young people is just impressive. And the fact that it's now accessible more than ever before, in a way, uh, ironic way, thanks to a pandemic, uh, but uh, 
they happened. It's just uh, to show that there's so much, there's so much um, opportunity these days for people anywhere in the world to learn and to, uh, you know, get all sorts of skills that are also connected to industry. So thank you for taking the time then to give us this very thorough, detailed presentation of what uh, the RSC Foundation does. I also want to mention that your the, the RSC Foundation website at roboticseducation.org is very detailed. So everything that you talked about is documented. <laughs> Just go to the yes. website. If, if anyone wants to get more information, uh, who can they get in touch with in the foundation? Yourself, someone else, do you recommend? Yeah, so, so roboticseducation.org, there is a, uh, an about, and then there's a contact. And so you know, your global audience, if you go to the, the, the resources, so it's robotevents.com slash support, you can get there through roboticseducation.org, or you can type in robotevents.com slash support, and there's a global map. So you can click on your country and within the country, the territories within the country. And when you click on that, it'll actually give you the contact information. So I just clicked on um, Australia and it's uh, Jessica McGaffin. She's fantastic. Um, everybody in Australia will absolutely love her. She does amazing things for robotics in Australia. And so it gives you the email address as well as the telephone number. But again, any country in the world, when you click on it, you'll find your person. And I also encourage uh, the audience to go to vexrobotics.com too. So while we do more than, uh, than just Vex Robotics programs, it is our biggest program. And the thing about Vex Robotics is their resources are unmatched. So when you go to Vex Robotics and you start, you know, navigating the website, you're going to find some of those free educational resources that are amazing. Um, you'll have a link to the Vex Robotics knowledge base, which will give you all kinds of good engineering um, and programming support. Um, and also you'll see some fun stuff that they have too. So I really appreciate you asking that question. So vexrobotics.com, roboticseducation.org. Um, between that, you'll definitely be able to get the contact and and we really hope more programs will join us. Uh, yeah. We're super excited. This is, like I said earlier, a global language. And there's nothing more fun than going to an event and meeting students from Russia, China, Kazakhstan, uh, of course, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Brazil, you know, Central America. It's so much fun. But it's most fun to watch the students smile as they build their robots. And uh, even the teams that maybe don't have the best competitive robot are still having a great time. And yes, when I see the smiles, I know that we're doing something special. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you very much, Dan. It was amazing. <laughs> well, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. And uh, maybe we'll talk in another year and uh, I can give you an update of what else we were doing. I'd love that. All right, super. Thank you so much, Peter.